welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Welcome to the Madden America podcast. I'm Anna Florence, postdoctoral associate at the Yale Program for Recovery and Community Health and a science writer for Madden America. Today, I'm very excited to sit down with Dr. Damius Pires for an interview about his life, his career, and his mandate as the UN Special Rapporteur on the right of everyone to the enjoyment of the highest attainable standard of physical and mental health. Dr. Pires is a medical doctor with notable expertise on mental health and child health. He took up his functions as UN Special Rapporteur on August of 2014. He's a professor at the Center for Child Psychiatry, Social Pediatrics at Vilnius University and teaches at the Faculty of Medicine. He is also the director of Human Rights Monitoring Institute, which is an NGO. He's a visiting professor at the University of Essex and a distinguished visitor with the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law at Georgetown University. As a medical doctor, he serves as a consultant at the Child Development Center at Vilnius University Hospital. Dr. Pires, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. It's a, a pleasure. I wanted to start by talking a little bit about your career. How did you decide to become a psychiatrist? Uh, it could be a long story. First of all, I decided uh, to, to, to study medicine, and it was, uh, let's say, controversial a decision because I was um, hesitating between uh, social sciences, humanities, and, and natural sciences. So, so somehow I felt that maybe medicine will be would be some something two in one or three in one. And then uh, when I started to study medicine, immediately I realized that uh, just fixing body parts, which is, uh, uh, I mean, diagnosing and, and uh, repairing body parts is very important, but it's not that interesting for me. For me, medicine was something more related to uh, philosophy. And uh, this is how I, I, I think in third year, I was already, it was clear, was clear for me that I will choose psychiatry. So then it was one more coincidence that uh, the medical faculty in my university was mature enough to realize that they want to start with child psychiatry, which they did not have before. And they suggested, uh, they offered to me position of assistant professor in, in medical faculty. So this this is how I started my career of child and adolescent psychiatry, and I I, I never regretted. Even the oh, even if the my relations with the profession of medical doctor always always had some tensions. That's very interesting, Doctor Pires. Um, that interest that you have in child and adolescence. Um, where did you practice when you started? What did your work look like? Oh, this was uh, early 80s of last century, and uh, uh, Lithuania at that time was still occupied by Soviet Union. So my first 10 years of medical practice 
was uh, practicing Soviet type of psychiatry and child psychiatry, and maybe in paradoxical way, this helped me to became to become sensitive to human rights and to remain sensitive to human rights because it was uh, quite a cynical uh, school. Of course, all theories have good intentions, so but uh, Soviet school of psychiatry had this idea that the only the only factors, the risk factors can be only in the brain because the the, the game of Cold War was that the Soviet Union eradicated all possible psychosocial factors because they defeated uh, capitalism. So it may seem, uh, maybe what I talk now may seem strange to my uh, Western colleagues who were on the other side and the uh, Soviet school was, uh, let's say, another extreme because they played cynical game that they do not have problems anymore. So they they never developed uh, community-based services. They did not have social workers, even even psychologists, and and the psychiatry and child psychiatry was, let's say, quite quite brutal. Unfortunately, what I learned from from my supervisors is how not to practice uh, psychiatry and child psychiatry. I respect them as as human beings. They were good people. But they represented this, this you know, uh, theory and practice, which I promised to myself to do everything so that uh, things change. So this was this was the system which I really was allergic to. I, I can say that I I hated this this these ideas, uh, and I was wondering why other people are <laughs> okay with them because. Because I ha- I knew ma- many colleagues who could live with that, and they told that, okay, this is the system, how it is, just we need to work and maybe minimize the harm. And I was telling, no, we have to change the system. So this is how uh, how my, uh, my, I don't know, rebellious or not rebellious ideas started so that I, I, never, I never could stop and I cannot, cannot stop now. Then, then uh, just after that, I realized that problems exist everywhere, and they are global, and they are not just only in my region. So, and then from uh, 1990, 1991, when all these peaceful revolutions took place in Eastern Europe, with democracy coming and independence of of uh, occupied nations, I was happy to start to. Uh, to move to realization of, of of many ideas, but the very beginning was with children who who with intellectual disabilities, and actually this was theme my of my PhD. I knew, let's say, I knew by heart. I I knew very personally all families who had such children in capital city of Lithuania. So I did research. Uh, I was traveling to Moscow many times because uh, um, the um, the only field uh, which was the, for example, if you are doing research at that time, I mean, it was in 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 the eighties of last century. If you do research in a- other any other medical field like you know cardiology or, or nephrology or infectious disease, 
pediatrics. You could do research in Lithuanian language, you could defend PhD in, in your own university, except psychiatry and child psychiatry. These were under ideological control. Because you could not touch upon, let's say, uh, social factors or psychological factors. We had to medicalize everything as much as possible so that to prove that social problems do not exist. But they did exist. And uh, I was dreaming about uh, changes when we could liberate uh, not only, let's say, patients uh, from this uh, uh, very ineffective and harmful system, but when we could liberate psychiatry as a field, because all psychiatry was a hostage of of uh, this ideology, and psychiatry was also, uh, as as we know, uh, at that time used for uh, political purposes. So I was wondering. Since then, uh, I was not happy, and I was thinking that. Just if any window of opportunity appears, I will do everything to not just to change, but somehow to give back what I somehow um, sort of promised to these to these people whom I met, to these families, to these children, because they actually were my my teachers. They were teaching me, let's say, ethical psychiatry, or what I realized later. They were teaching me that if you take away human rights from psychiatry, then psychiatry becomes uh, dangerous and toxic. That's a very interesting uh, point, Dr. Puros. It seems that you were, um, from early on, very aware of the role of ideology in psychiatry. Um, I'm wondering um, how that rebelliousness and what you call your allergy to that system uh, was a call for action for you? And what are the things that you were able to do and that you're proud of uh, of doing around that time? And so I was waiting for any opportunity because in the uh, Soviet system was was a totalitarian system. You could not... Uh, uh, all civic uh, civil life, let's say, you could not establish a non-governmental organization. It was uh, like criminal activity. and. Only in '89, I just you could feel this uh, wind of change. Still, still, we were waiting for one more year when we declared independence. But in '89, I already initiated parents' organization. In '89, you could do everything, everything, absolutely everything. It was. Uh, uh, finally, democracy, and so I invited all these parents, and they told everything is in your hands, uh, and you now you can use democracy and learn from parents from other countries how to uh, make pressure on governments that your children live uh, a dignified life. First, they wanted to go to uh, you know London, New York, and to make uh, children brain of their children operated or something like that. Because they were obsessed by by medical thinking that these children are just ill and somebody should cure them. But it took maybe one year for parents to move to, to the model, which we call now social model or human rights-based approach. They realized that the main goal is 
the hope that their children live with dignity also when parents die and, and children as, as adults stay and that they are not moved to some horrible institutions as, as it happened in, in that part of the world. So I'm very proud that I initiated this organization, which is called uh, Hope in, in Lithuanian language, but it means hope in English. And it's one of stronger uh, such kind of associations in, in this part of the world. And, and we, we are very good friends with uh, this, these parents and new generation of parents, and, um, and they are grateful maybe to me, but also they also, when they meet me, they tell, are you still keeping your promise? Are you telling to doctors to abandon medical model? I tell, yes, I am, and I am, I am doing this uh, now globally. Then I initiated Child Development Center in, in Vilnius University Hospital. I was first president of Lithuanian Psychiatric Association when, when we separated from Soviet Union Psychiatric Association, and I was trying to initiate uh, self-reflection and, and uh, let's say, self-regulation and uh, modernization of the of professional group of psychiatry. Yeah, it looks like your work uh, was very impactful um, in people's lives um, at that time and remains till this, this day, and that's, that's quite impressive. I wonder if we could do a jump in time and if you could tell us a little bit of how you became uh, the special rapporteur on the right of everyone to the enjoyment of the highest attainable standard of physical and mental health. Well, this this is not possible to do just just uh, to become a special rapporteur. You cannot just jump into it just from medical practice or from academic activities. It would be too difficult. What helped me helped me that uh, some 10 years ago, between 2007 and 11, I had four years of experience. I was elected to the United Nations Committee on the Rights of the Child. And this is how I learned a lot about UN machinery. And then in 2014, I applied for uh, for rapporteurship. Of course, I was happy to be nominated, to be to be appointed, and of course, I decided that I will use these 30 years of my unique experience, and I will. Uh, yes, I, I knew that I am rapporteur on rights to physical and mental health, but to address this, you know, contribute to parity, to contribute to, let's say, non-discrimination of mental health, I told in the very beginning that I will allocate a lot of attention to, to mental health because time has come for this. So this is how, for six years, I was doing a lot in the field of mental health, not only in mental health, but especially on, on, on mental health. Could you tell us uh, what a day as special rapporteur looks like? This is, uh, you know, this is hardly possible to tell because this is, uh, uh, if you can imagine that a special rapporteur, to be special rapporteur is not a job. 
it's a it's a pro bono activity and you know when you apply so you cannot complain and i never complained i think that it's a good idea because the main asset of special rapporteur is independence a special rapporteur can think can speak and and write what he or she thinks as an independent expert and this is our strength uh, but this makes life of course very difficult because you have to to survive so you have to have your your job your salary job so for example i was traveling before before pandemic start i was traveling between 25 and 30 travels per year so uh, so you are very often away and even when you are at home you have to work on 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 your reports on communications which you send to to governments and so on so this is this is very difficult to manage but it is possible to manage but this is extremely rewarding uh, activity uh, that is pro bono i think it's it's important decision that you are not Uh, receive um, salary from UN because you are not in job contract, which means that you can be critical also of you of UN and of any government in the world. So, so th- this is, I think, very good idea, and I am proud of UN system that governments uh, have made such a decision to have such a mechanism. It's called special procedures mechanism. And And this is a powerful mechanism which uh, which reminds to UN and to global community that the human rights based approach is, is crucial for peace security for development now for overcoming the pandemic absolutely um dr Pires. um i wonder you mentioned your reports and writing reports as a big part of the of this work And your reports really emphasize um, the social determinants of health and mental health and point to the overmedicalization of mental health care around around the world. Um, do you think that you helped put forth a new narrative to replace the old biological one? Well, it's not I think it's not for me to 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 make conclusions about contribution of my mandate. And my rapporteurship, I did my best to contribute to all this process, which is meaningful, a process of change, hopefully. I visited all continents and I, of course, had a lot of communications with many experts, including experts uh, based on their experience, users or ex-users of mental health services. And I was very confident to formulate main messages especially in my report to human rights council from 2017 but then also from 2019 not, not it's not about black and white it's not about denouncing you know biomedical model but my my approach is that uh, i identified huge asymmetries and imbalances and, and this has gone wrong that for some reasons Biomedical interventions were announced as if they are more effective than other interventions. And uh, there were many other asymmetries and uh, imbalances which made the status quo, which is global mental health at the moment, uh, not working. Not working. And I, and I have a lot of arguments, I, and I put all these arguments in my reports. I was not the first to criticize, you know, a medical model 
but I am I am I I just want and I think I used also this position that I am medical doctor and psychiatrist myself sort of contributed to diagnosis the diagnosing the system that such system is ineffective how can you expect to be effective with uh, you know addressing issues of many millions of people if the system is is, is not effective so some people told that it's too radical you know no i'm i'm i i think the most I am most proud of that I managed to stay firm on, on on principles and not to go opportunistic. In my reports, we had a very clear message that uh, this uh, over uh, these global uh, obstacles, uh, what I call global burden of obstacles, which is you know overuse of biomedical model and biomedical interventions, power asymmetries, especially between. Uh, psychiatrists and, and users of services and then biased use of knowledge and evidence, they are making harm, you know, and we have to consider main uh, principles on which mental health policies and, and services stand. And uh, this is how I think I, I contributed to to discourse, to discourse. Maybe, maybe some people, some people were telling that you know, you you your reports polarized. No, it's not my reports that polarized the uh, community of experts. Let's say the polarization existed before me. My reports, especially the one from 2017, were either. Uh, uh, the responses were either very positive or very critical. So I don't know how to explain. This is up to these experts. I think they're equally good experts, but there were many experts who told that these are very, very timely messages and these are very good reports. And there were experts who were writing, you know, angry letters to 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 un that such reports and such rapporteurs should be disqualified so you know i think they just my messages were like a test you know, where, where where you stand what do you think about this and i should confess that this was one of of my my goals absolutely um and on that topic i'm wondering um where did you find um support um, in your work, and where did you find uh, most resistance? Oh, support was a lot of support, uh, especially from civil society, of course. I have a, a lot of fans. I am very happy, you know, wherever I go, uh, I meet people. They can be from users' community of users of mental health services. They, they can be... Uh, non-medical mental health professionals, absolute majority of them were supporting my messages. And let's say some minority in psychiatric community. When you go to, to some country, you meet people and, uh, and they were telling, it happened a lot of times to me that they tell, okay, I liked your report. Okay, thank you. How do you know? How did you know so well situation and mental health with mental health care in uh, our country? Let's say in Korea and Japan and Iceland, Poland. I just I'm trying to remember even faces of these people. You know, 
And then I tell, sorry, I don't know. I, I have not uh, explored. I did not visit and I have not explored this country. So I don't know. And then they tell, no, no. You know perfectly because what you put in your report, you exactly described situation in our country. So this was, you know, this was most rewarding to hear because it signals that maybe I managed in my reports to capture this winter sense, you know, what of failure, of global failure, of this, uh, uh, um, you know, vicious uh, cycle which is reinforcing each other with helplessness, uh, institutionalization, over-medicalization, uh, exclusion. This is the system we are globally, and in this system, everybody is a hostage, including psychiatrists, not to speak about patients. So, so I, I was not the first to, to, to tell this, but you know, I think it's more serious when, it's come, when it comes from independent experts appointed by United Nations, and when it comes, some people were telling me, from the, the independent person with a background of uh, medical doctor and psychiatrist. I, yeah, you mentioned um, about the, the need to change, uh, to fundamentally change systems um, and not just put more money um, into systems that are you know, fundamentally flawed. Um, I wonder um, about the, what are your thoughts about the WHO um, and its global mental health initiatives? Do you think that that is perhaps foisting Western biological ideas on developing countries? I was trying now to formulate these issues in my next or one of the last reports, which will come out soon. We have to understand that WHO is part of United Nations and the hosts of UN and hosts of uh, WHO are governments. So WHO is bound to governments. So it is easier for special rapporteur, independent expert, to formulate messages like, like I did. I have a feeling that many people in WHO had sympathies for this. But you know, from WHO, maybe they cannot make such a, uh, let's say, okay, bold or open statement. So it's 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 part of the game that somebody, especially independent expert, can tell things in more critical way than WHO. Yes, of course, I I would would like to hear from WHO more clear messages that the human rights-based approach should be fully embraced and not in in selective way. But what I was happy to hear from WHO during recent years was a, a quality rights initiative, which is really very progressive, and it paves the, the way for those who still do not believe that psychiatry and mental health care can exist without coercion, WHO has a list of essential medicines. It's, it's, it's quite old idea, and, and we know that you need antibiotics, you need antiretroviral treatment. And in this list of essential medicines, there is a group of psychotropic medications. And when I was going to, to countries on official visits, and I, I am asking officials, how is with mental health care in your country? And they say, 
It's okay because uh, essential psychotropic medications are available. And I tell, but this mental health care is not about essential psychotropic medication much more. But they know from WHO that there are only essential medications and vaccines, and there are no such thing as essential psychosocial interventions, yes? So why not to add this? Why not to balance better biomedical interventions with other interventions which are as essential as medications, or maybe even more essential, I mean more, can be more effective. So uh, I am quite happy with my cooperation with the WHO, and I wish WHO to be more pro-human rights, so that they do not, countries do not receive message from WHO that only that right to mental health is just to give treatment to everyone. Right to mental health is that everyone would be free from any violence, any force, including in mental health settings. You definitely make some, some great points there. And I think we're all looking forward uh, to seeing what that new report um, is going to look like. Um, you mentioned a few times um, the pandemic, and I'm wondering... Um, if you could talk a little bit more about that, um, there's been some talk uh, recently about this pandemic maybe causing an epidemic of mental illness. Um, and this is a narrative that's already emerging. I wonder how you think we should be thinking about the psychological stresses and stresses of poverty um, that people are experiencing with the COVID-19 pandemic. How should we be thinking about those? Well, my uh, maybe idealistic thinking that we have now we have now a new chance, a new argument to move towards rights-based mental health policies with more strength. Because uh, with this p- pandemic, we should realize even more that this status quo is not effective. Uh, just. Two arguments. One is on on people with psychosocial and intellectual disabilities. How long millions of them will be continue staying in residential institutions? We 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 knew before pandemic that this is harmful, but many governments were still investing. Now we know with pandemic that these institutions now are becoming even more dangerous. Yes, as because because of contagion. And so we have another argument that we have to do everything possible globally, that people, all people, all children, all adults with mental health conditions or without live, okay, at home. I mean, they do not live in some artificial uh, institutions because it is against dignity. They, they, They have a right not to be deprived of liberty. Another issue is the so-called common mental health issues, which have been extremely medicalized by by status quo, by 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 a medical model, by overuse of biomedical model, when social determinants of health, when poverty, effects of poverty were turned into psychiatric diagnostic categories, like you know. All these people are ill with depression. They probably have 
chemical imbalances in their brain, or they are ill with anxiety disorders, and then you know medications are, are already ready for their treatment. So now with the pandemic, when people, millions of people are anxious and sad and lonely, are we going again to medicalize this, to, to pathologize this? This this will be disaster. This will be, I think, it will have nothing to do with common sense. Uh, do we have the way out? Yes, we have. We should use a lot of innovative uh, ideas, but we have to abandon medicalized way of addressing mental health conditions. I, uh, I, I recommend to think about systems of support and care for people instead of diagnosing them. So I see this crisis as it usually happens, that crisis also brings new opportunities. I see uh, this crisis as a unique opportunity to tr transform many things, including uh, mental health, uh, let's say support and care services. And I think, and I was having a, a lot of uh, conversations about this with um, representatives of elite of global psychiatry, that, you know, because I, my messages were often uh, interpreted as anti-psychiatric, as, as offending, you know, psychiatrists. No, psychiatry is in crisis, especially biological psychiatry is in crisis. We have to confess this, to admit this. And then we have to look for solutions how to, I should say, protect uh, image and reputation of psychiatry, of mental health care. And during this pandemic, we can do this uh, unless we go uh, again to medicalization. And what you told, what you gave, gave as example, I see this as a signal of another failure when I read in many texts that there will be many more mental illnesses. I don't agree that there will be more mental illnesses. There will be more people who are anxious, who are sad, who are, suffer from this uncertainty and predictability. Why, why we qualify all this as mental illness? Because mental illness supposes that something wrong happened with their brain. And then that means doctor has to come and fix this disorder. And, and then we move again and we reinforce again this failure of, of this vicious cycle with over-medicalization, power games, and, and so on. So it's it's high time and good opportunity to rethink, to reconsider. Uh, and I am, I do not, uh, I am strong opponent of demonizing and anybody, in this case, psychiatry. Psychiatry is not to be demonized or blamed. Psychiatry should be liberated from outdated, uh, you know, approaches because it's it's a hostage of of, of some outdated uh, legacy of coercion and you know over medicalization. That's a, a wonderful idea that perhaps in the midst of this tragedy uh, we can find an opportunity uh, to make some changes. And uh, I'm wondering, um, as my last question to you, if you could tell us a little bit about what's next for you after your mandate, mandate as rapporteur. I made a decision to position myself more as a representative of civil society. I was always 
doing a lot together with NGOs and and some people were, who know me they they always thought that I am you know in my heart I am civil society person. So now I am director of small NGO, but it's well known and has a good reputation in Lithuania. It's a human rights monitoring institute in Lithuania. We enjoy that we are a democracy, but we 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 want this democracy to be to be stronger, more mature, especially during this pandemic situation, which is a test to all democracies. Very interesting region with a very huge legacy of all this uh, system which I told in the beginning of our conversation. Still a lot of children and adults in large residential institutions, large psychiatric hospitals. So this region needs desperately transformation and I am ready to to commit to this. So I, we are already planning good projects and looking for networking with both EU countries, but even more so-called neighborhood countries, which are like countries like Ukraine, Georgia, Pakistan and, uh, and uh, other countries. So I am ready to use my experience for um, regional purposes, but at the same time to keep pulse on, uh, to keep attention on, on, on global pulse, because I will always be uh, very much interested in human rights situation globally. So we cannot expect that mental health settings will be setting oasis of, of, you know, respect to human rights when around uh, there is no respect to human rights. So this is why for me uh, the main thing is that all countries are sensitive to enabling environments in all settings. If we want to have better uh, mental health, what about Family, school, workplace, community, general society. Are we tolerant? Are we protecting universal human rights principles? Then, if yes, we can expect good mental health and well-being. And then to apply the same to mental health settings. If we tell that no violence in family, no violence in in school, no violence in, and discrimination in the workplace, so then no violence and discrimination in mental health settings. And if we follow these principles, this is way out of this uh, crisis of mental health care, crisis of, uh, of psychiatry. So, so just to, 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 to reiterate what I sent this message is in reports, my reports is not the crisis or burden is not of mental disorders. The burden is of obstacles which the system created. Uh, my contribution was modest. There were a, a lot of passionate people globally, a lot of committed people. And if we join forces, and we we gradually are doing this, there are many networks, I think that change may happen. Wonderful. Dr. Pires, I wish you the best of luck with the important work that you do. And thank you so much for joining us today and sharing some of your history and thoughts about mental health and your mandate as Special Rapporteur. It's been great to have you. Thank you. And thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, my thanks also go to Madden America because I was learning also from many, many sources and many people, but 
including, of course, Madden America. So many thanks. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.